Eclectic Spacewalk presents Conversations, a podcast about the uniqueness of the human condition and how, through conversation, we can continue to upgrade humanity's value systems. Everyone has a subjective, awe-inspiring viewpoint of our reality, and the goal of this podcast is to have conversations with unique humans. Eclectic Spacewalk means a broad and diverse range of Earth-based philosophies viewed from outer space. Send us any recommendations on who we should talk to next. But remember, we are not just a podcast. You can subscribe to our Substack newsletter and get first access to every podcast episode at eclecticspacewalk.substack.com. Connect with us on social media by following us on Twitter at eSpacewalk and the hashtag EclecticSpacewalk. Find us on Minds.com at EclecticSpacewalk. And as always, you can find everything on the website, EclecticSpacewalk.com. We want to talk with anyone over our shared humanity and best practices of life. Now, let's have a conversation. Hello, and welcome to Eclectic Spacewalk Conversations. I'm your host, Nicholas McKay. Today, we are joined by Samo Buria. Samo is a researcher, speaker, and writer. He is the founder of Bismarck Analysis, a research fellow at the Long Now Foundation, and a senior research fellow in political science at the Foresight Institute. Welcome to Conversation, Samo. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Uh, so first off, Samo, where were you born? I was born in uh, Slovenia, in a small town called Selje. It's uh, not even important enough to be the capital, okay. but I think it's a very uh, historically rich city. Uh, it has a beautiful 15th century castle that's uh, an actual fortification, not just a palace, right? Mm -hmm. So you can see the Moton Bailey that uh, oh, people sometimes Bailey. exactly love to mention. <laughs> you know, you see the, uh, the like, uh, deadly traps. And as a kid, I just immensely enjoyed mm. uh, exploring that, that ruin. Okay, so then was it more the city or was it more maybe some, uh, uh, I guess, in curious influences that got you on your, your path? Or a mix of both, probably. Honestly. Well, you know, my perspective when I was growing up is that I sort of live in a city of ruins. It had four layers of ruins. Uh, the first one was, uh, you know, broken Roman collar columns by the yes. river, yes. right? Just displayed in the park. You could go okay. play uh, among them. You could check them out. Second one, uh, castle up on the hill. Uh, third one was more interesting, this like sort of dying city center where it's sort of uh, activity, commercial and otherwise mm. moved to the suburbs. Sure. Plus an abandoned industrial layer. Mm. So when you see it, you realize, you know, if you're, if you're a kid, you realize, wait, why is my school where it is? Oh, it's where it is because the railroad is there. Why is the railroad there? The railroad's there uh, because that's where the factories were built. Mm. Well, the factories are no longer there. So what exactly am I doing here right. still? <laughs> that's what I mean by multiple layers of ruins. Right? I like that. I like Modern that. and ancient. Okay. And then so we actually kind of saw some of that when we went to Thessaloniki, Greece. Mm -hmm. we, we saw the Roman columns and things, but maybe we didn't get that industrial scene, but there definitely was layers. Um, so maybe talk about uh, some of your travels. So how, how exactly did you get from Slovenia all the way here to San Francisco? And then now we're talking in Los Angeles. Well, I've spent time in other European countries as well, but it wasn't really until like I was 26 or so, okay. they sort of came uh, to the conclusion that, okay, uh, the Anglosphere is currently the most intellectually active mm -hmm. of the sort of big sort of European language groups. I wasn't ambitious enough to try to learn Chinese, so I can't speak <laughs> about, you know, the Chinese speaking sure. world, uh, but it seemed everyone was essentially bilingual. 
And when it came to the Anglosphere, I realized that, you know, the Bay Area circa 2014-15 was about as interesting as the rest of the Anglosphere put together. When I would search out the most interesting people, uh, people that were, you know, contrarian thinkers, people that I would correspond with, have Mm -hmm. calls with, uh, ask for their opinions, uh, you know, 50% of the time they were in the Bay. Uh, And at that point, I decided that, you know, I should probably get a job there. I should move there. Uh, Very quickly after I arrived, I realized, you know, I I kind of prefer working for myself. Uh, So I created a consulting firm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's a lot. I like that, though. So (laughs) tell us a little bit about your European experience up until 26 then and and maybe how, like, you just kept uh, driving, you know, because, again, like, you, you said you were interested in some things, but maybe you, it didn't like culminate into you actually making the move mm. and saying, "Hey, I'm actually going to do this in the Anglosphere right. or wherever." Right. You know, right? Well, the basic thing is if you explore several European cities, right? You go maybe to Paris, you go to Amsterdam, mm. you go mm. to Berlin. They each have a lot to recommend them. Vienna also. Sure. Uh, they might have excellent universities. They might have great uh, research libraries. Uh, they might have like something of a good sort of old world cafe culture where Mm. you can still say just talk up a stranger about politics or about philosophy or whatever you know you talk to someone reading a book reading a book in a cafe there if it's a physical book is almost an invitation to go speak to the person Um, so you have nice remnants like that but so much of my life has always been optimized to like be around the smartest people i can find I, i usually phrase it that you know smart people are the best nootropic there's no substance or a training program. They'll do as much for you as speaking to like the most brilliant people you can find. Mm-hmm. And that's you know why I go out of my way to try to meet them, try to reach out with them, either professionally or just out of intellectual curiosity, mm-hmm. right? Having, um, you know, say, a good conversation with David Deutsch or Stephen Wolfram sure. uh, easily worth weeks of study, I think. <laughs> easily. So David Deutsch, again, for our uh, viewers, um, more like, a futurist, if you will, beginning of infinity. Loved that book; mm-hmm. it was incredible. Uh, and then, who's the? Sorry, I just forgot who you mentioned. The second uh, one, St- Stephen Wolfram. Stephen Wolfram, the guy who uh, programming language and new physics now. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, he he proposed a new paradigm of physics. Yeah, right. pretty and intense. I was listening to him, I think, on the Sean Carroll podcast, and they were going through it. And Sean Carroll's about the most mainstream scientist that kind of takes these crazy <laughs> abstract ideas and. Gets them into my puny brain. Right, uh, right, right. So um, let's just talk about maybe some differences in, in living abroad versus the United States and maybe just kind of set the tone for that. I know you talked about a little bit of intelligence and maybe San Francisco or Los Angeles, mm-hmm. even maybe New York uh, has been uh, known for that. But then what are maybe some of those places other than Paris or something? Have you found them in smaller places? Have you mm-hmm. found them in bigger or is there a big difference or is it just cultural uh, between, between most of them? I think it's definitely the case that if you want the most ambitious intelligent people, mm. they will tend to be very much uh, attracted to the prospects of some great economic achievement, sure. right? Okay. So it's not that a place that's very prosperous will necessarily have a good intellectual culture, mm-hmm. but the people who are high in ambition, high in intelligence will often end up congregating there. Much later in the development of a city, you'll also tend to see uh, sort of patronage networks arise. Mm-hmm. You know, I have this like a little bit of a contrarian view that you can't use bureaucracies to legislate culture. If it was, Mm -hmm. Europe would be much more innovative in its culture rather than being at this point, unfortunately, a continent of museum cities, right? Right. Museum city, like by which I mean Rome, right? You don't go to Rome for what's happening there today. You go Mm -hmm. there for what happened there 2,000 years ago and you go see the ruins. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. 
or maybe the papacy. Let's see the okay, papacy. Okay. Yeah, so uh, you, yes, you yes. go visit not the Rome of Italy, you visit the Rome of the Caesars and the Rome of the Popes. Mm -hmm. Those are the Romes you visit. Right. And uh, I feel Europe more and more has these sort of museum cities, which are good custodians of a cultural legacy, but haven't created a new one. Mm -hmm. In America, a great example of great wealth and commercial success being translated with a delay into culture would be New York City. I think New York City, if you look at the origin of all of these big cultural institutions that are based there, they're just based on various industrial fortunes that were donated by people who were feeling uh, sort of inadequate compared to Paris and London. You know, back in 1900, there were a lot of complaints written. Sure. Why is the art world less developed in the U.S. than uh -huh. in Europe, etc.? And a lot of things like, uh, you know, I think the National Gallery in D.C. are from that era. Right. Or the Met, or something like that. Exactly. In that kind of exactly. Area. Or, or like Rockefellers donating a bunch of money. It's yes. Like, it's okay. Okay. I can yeah, see that. Yeah. 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 Um, so when when we talk about like that specifically, we just talked a little bit about the Anglosphere, I guess. Have how much uh, experience, or is it something in the future? Are you at all interested in, or what are maybe some of the centers mm -hmm. in the Chinese or like kind of area? Is it Singapore? Is it you know maybe smaller cities mm -hmm. in, in China that are innovating? What what do you see on that, or do you have an experience in, in that kind of world? Uh, maybe from the uh, digital sphere, or have you traveled there, et cetera? I would I would say that you know uh, Singapore itself feels to me like a city that strove to achieve global preeminence, but mm -hmm. uh, I think kind of fell short. I think the agglomeration mm. effects of Shenzhen are very likely to drive that as the intellectual and cultural city. Gotcha. But the disclaimer is, of course, I haven't been to Shenzhen. There was a, a planned trip to China that <laughs> got canceled due to, well, you can guess it, COVID, <laughs> right? So many <laughs> of our travel it. plans were sure. destroyed by COVID. So uh, I still hope to go there. Um, though, who knows, with worsening relations, we might have a world that's much less open to travel than For what sure. we've been used to. Yes, yeah, that's very true, and not just in even in the Anglosphere, mm -hmm. in terms of uh, you know Britons uh, mm -hmm. trying to go through to the uh, European world, et cetera, with Brexit, and then not just with COVID. Um, okay, well then let's let's talk a little bit about like what you're kind of doing now with uh, research fellowships, and uh, so you're you're a research fellow at the Long Now Foundation and a senior research fellow in political science at the Foresight Institute. So maybe just talk about like what exactly is a research fellow? You know, what do you do? <laughs> uh, you know, kind of talk the audience in about. Uh, what kind of you know um, publications or some type mm -hmm. of like communication that you do, and then also even just uh, how kind of the process goes, and then what you do do with that, because it's a lot of I think uh, theory to practice. It can be used very very good for that, but then also I think a lot of things uh, sometimes get stuck in that theory or academic kind of uh, abstract mind and doesn't yes. really make the connection. So maybe. Let's riff on that after you kind of set the stage. Of course, of course. I mean, I view my life as pretty dedicated to this fundamental intellectual project of understanding our civilization, uh, mm -hmm. where it's going, and hopefully finding some ways to contribute to it, right? To contribute right. to these like big macro processes, right? Uh, either through describing them accurately or through um, warning people or getting their attention mm -hmm. onto topics that might sure. be otherwise neglected. So having said that, uh, I've oriented my career completely around that, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and my consulting firm, Bismarck Analysis, it's there so that any research that I do into the nature of organizations, institutions that can be monetized is. Mm -hmm. But not everything can be monetized. For Correct. some things, the nonprofit world is the best, where you have a, a general interest rather than a specific interest 
that's the place where you really want nonprofits to do a good job. Sure. Now, not all nonprofits are very research oriented. Often they're sort of promotion oriented. So I feel very fortunate to be associated with the Long Now Foundation and the Foresight Institute because I believe there are both rare exceptions in that they are excellent intellectual environments mm -hmm. where people truly care about the generation, the creation, mm -hmm. not just the dissemination of new ways of thinking and you know, new research in the world. Sure. Um, the research fellowships themselves come with moder moderate amount of freedom. Um, you basically have to, uh, you know, explain what your research is about, uh, <laughs> write it up, publish it, exactly, <laughs> publish it. Yeah, you know, it might be just published on literally uh, the organization's website oh, as, a, as a white paper, as a PDF, even sure. on, on their blogs, right? Mm -hmm. um, you might apply to journals. In an interesting way, I think it is what academia used to be. Mm -hmm. I, in fact, much earlier in my life considered an academic path. And, you know, talking to professors of economics, political science, and so on, I realized, oh, my God, this is, a, this is rather miserable, isn't it? <laughs> you kind of have to do 10 or 15 years of drudgery before you just do the research. And when you do the research, you're tied to the strict publishing agenda, right? right, right Please, right. you know, imagine the 19th century, the scientists of the 19th century, right, where you could spend years between publications, and that was, say, a productive mathematical Absolutely. career or career in biology. You know, Charles Darwin waited for, like, basically a decade, if I recall, oh, right, sure. before, okay. like, sharing his conclusions. And today, that would just not be viable as an academic career. So, not, yeah. so, 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 so the view is... Uh, organizations that have good enough taste in epistemic excellence and generativity that have a mission that's properly aligned uh, with discovering the truth. I think these are one of the best positions you can get uh, intellectually and I, I warmly recommend to people who have their own intellectual ambitions that they look at these, let's call them academic jobs mm -hmm. outside of academia right. as the right platform for their research and for their thinking. Now, uh, with Long Now Foundation, I uh, do research in the so-called Continuity Project, which is a look at some of the longest-lived organizations around the world mm -hmm. and trying to bring in lessons from them. We can talk about that later. Mm -hmm. And for the Foresight Institute, it's mostly the application of uh, political science-style insights to uh, predicted technological developments. Right. Mm, what right, does right. the world look like if you know we have AGI? What is that as a political question? What does the world look like if you know, say, uh, we had catastrophic lab leaks? Like I'm sure, sure that doesn't happen, sure. you know. But what are the social and political consequences of technology? Because it's a very intricate feedback loop. If you try to project the future of technological development while you ignore uh, the social uh, and political aspect, you will just be wrong. The right. feedback loop goes pretty direct. It goes both through regulation, through funding, but also through the allocation of peak talent, right? One mm -hmm. of the more interesting things that I think, say, Elon Musk did has been to uh, make it cool to be an aerospace engineer again. Right. I do, I do see that. Okay. I, I see where you're going with that. Okay. So yeah. maybe, so what, what would be some of the things that are maybe on the cusp of becoming cool again? Is mm -hmm. it, because Elon Musk, it seems maybe we're rocket engineers and mm -hmm. stuff like that. I'm, I'm with it. But then uh, the long now, it seems like they have a couple projects that seem pretty interesting. I think mm -hmm. it's the long clock. Uh, then even just, I, I want to go to their uh, coffee shop and bookstore in San Francisco oh. <laughs> as well. Um, but then also they have a very uh, deep history. Um, I'm blanking on his name, uh, Stephen Brandt, Stuart Brand. Stuart right. Brand. So um, there, there's a deep history there with uh, trying to look out for, like you said, 
uh, and academia without being in academia. And that's what fellowships have been something that I was definitely wanting to be researched in as a postgrad, uh, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, but one of the things I wanted to talk to you about uh, that kind of culminates with some of these is um, Contrary to, contrary to the analogies that like Twitter is a dumpster fire, which you know it most certainly is, you know parts of it, it. exactly. Um, online media has like the true capacity to like connect, yes. learn, grow. Um, that's how you know we found each other, and we're exercising that muscle right now with this you know conversation. But like you wrote a piece about the YouTube revolution and knowledge transfer that we thought was super super interesting. So can you talk about that, and then maybe some of those things of now that this is in these fellowships and academia, this is a new ball game. This is a new landscape. This is what I'm kind of trying to, yes. to, to thread these lines through is that this is not your regular academia anymore. Right, it, right, you can right. the courses, uh, um, a lot of different essays, websites, multimedia projects, etc. So maybe let's just riff on some of that and then also tie it in with maybe a specific example of the YouTube knowledge right. revolution, which is very niche and specific, but then has general, general uh, implications. Right, right. Um, I think that I'm rather contrarian where we associate YouTube with these fairly uh, boring topics, these like sort of like entertainment, wasting time. Oh, I see. And I yes. wanted to write the sort of positive version of that, like something that's like a bit more uplifting because I believe there's a reality there. Sure. And I started by simply asking people, you know, well, tell me, when do you, where do you learn practical skills? Like, where did you learn how to cook? Where oh, did yes. you learn? Mm. Where did you learn how to, you know, participate in crafts? Like, how do you actually learn to make that table and so on? Um, and the answer was always YouTube, right? So it wow. ended up being the case that almost everyone was in fact learning things over and over again by looking up a YouTube video. So instead of say asking a handyman, right. you would go and you would uh, just watch the video. And I realized what was happening there. Why was that an upgrade compared to a written description? Mm. Well, because not everything can be captured by a written description. Oh, that's so true. Right, yeah. like there is a tacit knowledge to something like cooking, something like any type of craftsmanship, even something like gardening, and ultimately, yes, even things like open heart surgery. Sure. There's a reason why I really care about your surgeon being good. It's because the skill of the surgeon matters, and it's very difficult to proceduralize that so that any surgeon would be good as the best surgeon. Uh, and these are, these are, again, areas where it's this sort of tactile almost mm. memory, this almost muscle memory, uh, this uh, implicit know-how. So why is YouTube better at this than just, say, a film crew with a camera? Sure. Well, a yeah. film crew with a camera is only invited in in these old-style BBC documentaries right, right, if right. there's an organization behind it, if there's research. As soon as you had a compact smartphone with a good enough camera, people started recording their everyday lives including their work, sure. right? Absolutely. So there's an entire community of YouTube dedicated to making great furniture, where people mm. are, as hobbyists, producing professional-grade uh, furniture, starting new companies. Uh, you have javelin throwers who win silver or gold, and they mostly train by watching videos uh, of, other <laughs> of other javelin throwers Amazing. who had professional right. coaches. And of course, you, you supplemented with very hard training, but the information was actually stored in those videos, mm. and I think that's remarkable, right? When you see a person, uh, you know, a person carry out an activity versus a mere description of an activity, the mirror neurons fire uh, mm. in your brain, and you're you're very much primed to repeat or copy. 
Wow. Okay. So then I'm going to give you an example of a practical example of this working in, in the, the positive is mm -hmm. in the last year, I have been kind of obsessed with watching two types of videos. One, reaction videos. Mm -hmm. And so like I'm also, I'm very interested right. in seeing people react and stuff. Mm -hmm. But then less so, that's more entertainment. The one thing that I love is watching this guy in Thailand who, who plays soccer with a GoPro camera. Mm -hmm. And he basically goes and plays and I now watch that before I go play because now instead of like mm -hmm. watching like YouTube highlights, which was the before, mm -hmm. you would watch Messi or Ronaldo right, right, or something right. and try to, you know, and mimic that. But then now it's getting to a point and maybe he is, you know, making that thing of the POV. That is, I right. think, another thing that is going to be coming with uh, artificial uh, or AR, VR, etc. But then what, what is kind of the future of that? Is it going to be, and maybe we can kind of get into the difference of history and kind sure. of things like that. But um, what is kind of the difference of, say, like holding a book and having some knowledge and then the mirror, no or no maybe not mirror mm -hmm. neurons or, or trying to figure yourself out of like you're in Tolkien's world, world building and stuff like that, mm -hmm. fictionalized versus something that, you know, you watch and then you try to do because obviously you can't just watch it and do it. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to maybe try and fail and right, etc. Right. If you just read it, you just read it and it's in your head, you know, head. So I'm trying to kind of just make that difference mm -hmm. a, a little bit of like what the future is going to be even more so, you know, and, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but maybe let's riff just on something like that. In the, is it going to be artificial reality, virtual reality, or is it going to maybe be coming back to, uh, you know, just solid video or in scales that people specifically uh, create media and consume media in written, in audio, in video, etc.? We've not yet reached the limit of what just high quality video will do. Uh, Arguably, yes, we are approaching uh, this point slowly maybe with TikTok because I think one of the things that people don't necessarily consider TikTok will definitely do is it will uh, change our mannerisms and modes of expression mm -hmm. very fundamentally. Like if you're between 15 and 25, yes. you're already being terraformed by TikTok. If you're between 20 and 35, your mannerisms were already terraformed by YouTube. In a way, this isn't new. Sure. Uh, it is new because Hollywood has often been imitated. It changes social norms over time. Say like in Eastern, in Eastern Europe, you know, very reserved people. We don't smile much when we look at the camera. And in the early 2000s, there was a shift in norms uh, towards more impersonal contact and hugging which is basically imitation of U.S. media. Interesting. Okay. Right, right. Okay. And older people, people who were 40 or 45, would comment on it and consider it unusual. So I think right now what's happening is instead of just it being imitation of actors, it is sort of imitation of the masses of people oh, using wow. TikTok. So it's yes. a very fertile mimetic cycle. And uh, I think we're just going to talk very differently. We're going to express <laughs> ourselves very differently 20 or 30 years from now than we do today exactly due to this, due to this feedback loop. Right. And I can, I can definitely attest to that even in terms of, uh, I, uh, let's go before YouTube, mm -hmm. even Facebook and Twitter or just coming on or the World Wide mm -hmm. Web in general, like it has completely changed everything about right. everything kind of. So I want to talk uh, first about a quote that you said, and then we can go into to more uh, history. So there was never, there has never been an immortal society. No matter how technologically advanced our own society is, it is unlikely to be an exception. To achieve a positive future that defies these odds, we must understand the hidden forces that shape society. So first, can we talk about history as a discipline? Mm -hmm. But then also, we just kind of uh, went around that a little bit in the difference of cultures of oral versus written versus maybe multimedia uh, in the future. So 
Let's reform that a little bit. Well, I think that the hypothesis I would advance, and it's a, I admit a, a imperfect and limited perspective mm -hmm. because as individuals, whenever we study something that's beyond an individual, we always have an imperfect image, an imperfect um, slice of reality. Of so having said that, I would say that these particular forms of tacit knowledge that we were discussing before, they don't just apply, you know, uh, they don't just apply to like heart surgery or working on machine tools or cooking. They actually apply in how do you uh, manage human beings? How do you mentor uh, others so they acquire deep skills? How do you resolve political disputes? How do you um, provide spiritual guidance? This packet of things that I call social technologies. Now, some of these social technologies can be explicated. Codes of law are fairly straightforward, codified, explicated, systematized right. social conventions, but they ultimately just are that. They are social conventions, right? A law enforced by no one is not a real coordination protocol anymore. It's just a fiction, mm -hmm. maybe a legitimacy granting fiction. And of course, legitimacy granting fictions are in themselves a type of social technology. So we have both implicit, explicit social technology, contrasting it with material technology. So a jet fighter is material technology. Mm -hmm. The US Air Force is a social, a stack of social technologies right. embodied in an institution, wow. right? So having said all of this, um, what does it mean to have these differences between oral, written, and multimedia cultures? I think the key answer is that they handle the succession problem differently. Mm -hmm. Succession here in this sense being skill succession, though it also has a separate component of power succession, which we can go into later. Uh, skill succession is essentially that, you know, we as humans, again, we're mortal, our lives pass, eventually we need replacing, mm -hmm. right? Our social roles probably fulfilled by other people. Sometimes the roles are obsoleted, but usually they need a replacement, someone of equal or great, greater skill. Um, I think with oral cultures, the interesting thing is that knowledge is very distributed and local. With writing, knowledge becomes arguably centralized. The reason for that is that writing, well, uh, you don't need personal contact to talk with someone. Uh, it enables long distance communication. Uh, it was historically associated with the privileged class. But even if you flip writing away from the privileged class of, you know, Egyptian scribes or what have you, uh, or medieval priests or Chinese mandarins, mm -hmm. uh, you end up with a mass literate society, but a mass literate society where only a few places are doing the printing and only a few newspapers dominate national discourse. I can guarantee you that if America was a purely oral culture, there would be no such thing as the New York Times. There'd be no such thing as the Atlantic. There would be no such thing as a national conversation. What's that even mean, right? right, right. The national conversation is always a tiny slice of all possible conversations that could be had dominating the public airwaves. Uh, now, multimedia, I would break down into two parts, right? right? The first era of multimedia is basically television, radio. Arguably, that's a continuation of print. It's more similar to writing than it might seem, mm -hmm. right? Uh, more similar than writing because sometimes, well, writing is what determines what's said, right? Screenwriters sure. uh, here in LA, obviously they form a whole subculture in their own right. And uh, arguably they were a great uncharted intellectual influence in what people thought. Sure. Uh, there tends to be a prestige or a seriousness hierarchy where, mm -hmm. you know, I've had the experience over and over again when someone was like, oh, I really liked your article. And it's like, oh, where did you read it? And they correct themselves. They're like, oh, I listened to you on a podcast talking <laughs> about it. So what's heard on a podcast is attributed to writing. 
And this is an old phenomenon. People who are basically inspired by movies or TV shows, say someone inspired by Star Trek, might prefer to credit in a public appearance Carl Sagan. Or if they were inspired by Carl Sagan, maybe they'll credit Albert Einstein or Feynman or whatever, like actual scientists. So there's a slight misrepresentation of influence. And I think screenwriters are underrated because no one wants to say that they've been influenced by movies, right? It makes you sound brainwashed. But then arguably, the 20th century was a century of brainwashed societies, right? So television, radio, it's like writing, but more intense, more visceral. Uh, it's underreported. Now, the second half of multimedia cultures, right? The first half would be you know, radio, television, all of that. The second half is generation by people themselves, right? Mm -hmm. You have the concept of virality. Now, virality is still tweaked and mm -hmm. centrally controlled, but as soon as the video production can happen anywhere, I think there's a much richer, more fertile, uh, you know, sort of, let's call it mim mimetic petri dish, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, lots and lots of experiments are run. Some of them are adopted, some of them are upregulated, others are banned and censored, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully. Uh, but the speed of cultural production, I think, does in fact go up with this mm. technology, all else equal. So having said all of this, cultural production, what about cultural reproduction? Uh, it might seem then that we are returning to oral culture, highly localized, person-to-person -person relationship, mm -hmm. arguably um, the uh, skill gain analog of the three eras would be you know, master-apprentice relationships for oral cultures, yeah. uh, civil service exam, for the written culture, and for this, you know, digital multimedia culture, you know, we we actually don't have anything beyond the influencer. So there's no real thing that pushes us towards relocalization or succession. The mutations happen locally, but the spread is just as viral as mass media society. Mm. So I, I actually am uncertain how exactly we'll do knowledge replication. One positive aspect of it is that in multimedia culture, mediated through the internet, the world loses a sense of time, right? There's still fads. There are things that feel dated or don't feel dated, but nothing prevents you from watching a series of videos from 2012 or reading articles from 2004. Sure. Things might become viral at strange times. There'll be people reviving a particular thing. Yeah. So if there is a way in which multimedia society might solve the succession problem, I think it would be through essentially persistent online scenes and subcultures. Mm. You've probably noticed that subcultures no longer congregate around music genres, right? right? Music genres, arguably right now, the main use of them is for uh, people to emotionally connect with very small groups of friends rather than participate in scenes the way they did in the 1990s and early 2000s. Oh, like mass gathering. Exactly, right? exactly. Yes, right. yes, yes, well, yes. they would have an established fashion, you sure. would drive a certain, you, you would dress a certain way, you would like, um, organize events a certain right. way, you would have social conventions, there would be a preferred drug of choice that's used at the scene, you know, if it was metalheads in Europe, then obviously they would drink a lot of beer, <laughs> if it was, you know, it was people in California, maybe they did a lot of acid, whatever, right? right, right? right. Um, I think that was replaced now by online subcultures that congregate for now around like aesthetics mm -hmm. and other times around particular practices, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, yes, these yes. are, however, substantially um, parasocial communities where most of the interactions are uh, at a distance, where you are in your head, you have a relationship with this person that you're following online, that person might not know you exist, mm -hmm. right? It's not humanly possible for them to know you exist if they have 100,000 or a million followers. 
you might still have smaller chat groups that formant out of that. So mm -hmm. to summarize, uh, oral culture, master apprentice, local tribes, uh, written culture, bureaucratic systems, uh, standardized yes. testing, exactly. Mm -hmm. And finally, multimedia internet culture, uh, scenes that are very dynamic where people go in and go out, so it's not like tribes. And there's a lot of uh, runaway imitation mm, of the people. Copycats, exactly, copycats, where you aspire to an aesthetic, right? Like there's a way to be a YouTuber, for mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. right? And there's a whole genre of different ways to be a YouTuber. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Well, then, so now that we are, we just went through to multimedia, and I, and I just kind of thought of this, so uh, bear with me if, if, if you're not mm -hmm. familiar or whatever. But um, uh, I'm assuming you've read uh, Francis Fukuyama's uh, essay, The mm -hmm. End of History. And that just seems like an interesting kind of uh, question mark. Is this mm -hmm. the end of history after multimedia cultures in, in terms of... Because it seems like when you, when you just uh, let everyone go and they have their own agency... Right, right. Who, it's this, who knows where it's going? So right. I'm, and I ask this facetiously in, in a sense of like, is this the end of history then because of these? Or is it going to be... Uh, and I don't want to keep putting you on the spot of like what's next, but I just think that's a super interesting thing of... of, of uh, you know, he kind of had this thing of end of history, end of liberalism, mm -hmm. and then now we're kind of seeing that there's an end of some things, but now if it's a change and just a, a mutation, I think you used right. the word of, um, I, I think that's maybe more inclined of where it's going to go rather than all of a sudden uh, we're just going to stop being, um, you know, having institutions and civilizations, etc. Right, you know. right, right. Um, well, Fukuyama's claim in the 1990s was that the great ideological struggles of the world and of history are over. Mm -hmm. There will still be wars, there will still be events, but history with a capital H will cease happening. This almost Hegelian dialectic where uh, social systems compete and uh, you know there's a thesis, antithesis, mm -hmm. synthesis, and so on. Uh, that whole genre of thinking that's actually has many shoot-offs, right? Some of them is, is Marxism, sure. uh, others like I would argue normal economic theory has these esoteric philosophical implications as well, right? What does it mean if line only goes up? If line oh, only goes up, right? To use the meme, yeah, right? Yeah, if yeah. stonks only go up, yeah. well, maybe there's like the singularity behind the corner, <laughs> right? And I, I was expecting the singularity when I was like 10 years old. I no longer expect the singularity. Therefore, I'm skeptical of line going up. Right, right, right. <laughs> line go up until a point and then go down. Go down, down right, 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 yeah, right. Yeah, 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 good point, good point. That's so, so, so that's like an esoteric theory of history embedded in normal economics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but Fukuyama's uh, statement is like, well, maybe it's still true in a narrow sense. The narrow mm. sense being he predicted the end of ideology as in like this big animating view of how history should be oriented, mm. uh, how people will coordinate together. They'll like read the works of Marx and then they'll read Lenin and then they'll organize themselves the way Lenin describes you should organize themselves. And then you have revolutionary cells and maybe the revolution is successful, maybe it's not. Maybe the security forces actually have to start specializing in squatting, squ squashing these little sure. Leninist groups. Yeah. That's a mode of ideological history that's very 20th century, right? right. Like, you know, you know, fascism, arguably FDR's America, Imperial Japan, Soviet Union, they all have examples of this, right? It plays out in the theaters such as the Spanish Civil War. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason he feels quite incorrect is from about 2000 to the 2010s, it seemed like there was a big struggle between maybe liberalism and say like political Islamism as such, yeah. and that's why everyone sort of agreed that he was wrong. But since the defeat of ISIS, 
I feel like Islamism has imploded as seeming yeah. a viable vision of the future. Now, when I say viable, I don't necessarily mean it was desirable. I'm just saying it seemed like a viable political move. Uh, well, what is next? Yeah. I don't think we actually have a next one. Mm. And if we continually do not have a next ideology, this would mean that the main social mode of coordination for political action has moved away from ideology. Mm. So history might continue, but ideological history might stop. Right. For a variety of reasons, I don't think that's actually our situation unless we go much higher in internet censorship. One of my critiques right now of American society is that we had a fairly anarchist conception of the internet where everyone was going to be yep. free, everyone was going to be able to say what they want, yep. they would be able to be anonymous, they'll be able to send money through the internet, they're going to mm -hmm. order drugs from the dark net, off the internet, oh, yeah. all of that. <laughs> and instead of being vast liberation of anonymity, it's become the panopticon. Yep. So if it's the panopticon, what is our solution? How do we make this compatible with democracy? I think we currently don't have a good answer. I think year after year, we're just negotiating how fast does our internet converge with Chinese internet, sure. right? Where the Chinese internet, they just start off, they're like, well, of course we have to maintain it to be pro-social. And of course, the Communist Party of China determines what's pro-social. In uh, America, I think people are deciding who exactly sits on the trust and safety committees. Uh, but if the trust and safety committees can ban you off the internet, then I'm sorry, structurally, it's the same as China. Different keywords might be banned, but structurally, information theory-wise, it's the same as China. Sure. I don't think we're there yet, but unless a different future is found for the internet, mm -hmm. that might actually stop ideological development. Mm -hmm. Because I believe with the mimetic ferment and with uh, verbal or rather text-heavy platforms such as Twitter, we have the preconditions for a new golden age of political, social, economic thought. Gotcha. But uh, you know, if uh, everyone's put on mute, no one talks, these ideologies can't develop and can't form. And look again, let, let me be devil's advocate. I know I, sure. I love to be the devil's advocate to the devil's advocate <laughs> to the devil's advocate, yes. but one more click. Well, maybe I can understand why the Chinese Communist Party or why, say, uh, Western uh, social media companies might want to mute things because the birth of new ideologies has never been peaceful. Mm. But then, you know, we can't live in a fake peace forever. Line goes up until line goes down. When line goes down, you need new solutions. And I think the COVID-19 pandemic has shown that neither we nor China, though arguably China did a bit better, uh, have a good idea of how to adapt to really new physical circumstances. Sure. We're living in a simulation of 2019. We don't yet know what 2021 is like. We don't yet know what 2025 is like. Sure. Is it perpetual lockdowns? Is it all gonna be delivered by drones? Uh, you know, are essential workers perhaps the only workers that are left and everyone who's, uh, you know, working from home is like partially relying on some kind of UBI subsidy? Sure. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. these are like really troubling questions. And I think we have no 20th century answers. But societies can spend a very long time avoiding noticing that they have no questions on mm. something. There's a lot of ruin in a country. And there have been entire civilizations that spent centuries in like slow, slow decline because there was no viable, peaceful, or other way to address the fundamental inadequacies of their societies to reality. To reality. And then yeah. that's a big pill to swallow for a lot of individuals and institutions mm -hmm. to do that. But then if they do swallow it, it's almost like you're on at least... You're on a path of righteousness of sorts or going sure. back you know, to, to doing something. Um, 
a lot of things came up when you said that, but one thing that stuck was, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the founder of Reddit, Aaron Schwartz, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and he had a famous quote that, you know, uh, the internet let everyone have a voice, mm-hmm. but then now it's a, now a question of who gets heard. Right. And I think that really kind of speaks to not just the dynamics of economics and social institutions and things like that, but we are in a different time that, you know, it's not the same internet as, as what no. we grew up with. It's not the same digital environment. So um, trying to kind of parse with that, uh, how does travel like really orient, orient with the context of history? Mm-hmm. Um, like, and also how can we like respect history without getting out of control? For instance, like the caves of, caves of Lascaux, mm-hmm. now they're shut down because you know, we basically, too many people went in there and breathed hot air breath, you know, and, right, and right. started deteriorating shit. Um, and then also like the beach in Thailand, the famous mm-hmm. beach now closed down. Um, so like, how can we not overuse novelty, I guess you could say? Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it, um, that everyone can enjoy. But then the difference, there is a difference than being somewhere and actually uh, seeing it online. And then maybe this is our transition after into Gobekli Tepe right. because Gobekli Tepe, I want to go to Gobekli Tepe. But like at the same time, like I'm now kind of at least thinking, who knows, but I'm at least thinking about, well, wait a minute, you're even going there is maybe something, maybe you don't need to go there. Maybe it's, exactly. you know, the researchers and things like that. And so I'm trying to go that myself. And so how can we kind of navigate that, you know? Yeah, you raised a very good topic where mass tourism especially uh, destroys the thing it claims to value, yeah. right? Where over time, local social and economic norms adapt to the tourists. And also, of course, there is damage that happens to sites sure. if they are visited. Now, for Gobekli Tepe, I'm just going to briefly explain what it is. It's yeah. an 11,500 year old uh, monumental construction site. It has these like massive concentric circles with uh, tall 10 to 15 ton pillar rocks. Uh, you know, the reason the site is very interesting is because it predates the consensus origin of agriculture. Uh, the estimates by archaeologists are that the, it would have required a labor force of 500 people uh, to construct. Um, it is considered to be probably some sort of temple or religious center, though mm-hmm. I always have like a little bit of skepticism whenever they dig up something and it's like for ritual purposes. I'm like, yeah, yeah, everything's for ritual everything's purposes. <laughs> exactly. Your daily, is, your daily exactly. is your ritual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, no, but having said that about Gobekli Tepe, it was in fact controversial that the site was open for tourists and that oh. it was a walkway was built around the site. So the site was first dug up mm-hmm. by the archaeologists studying it, revolutionizing our understanding of history. It was a team by uh, Klaus Schmidt, oh, yeah. uh, German archaeologist, uh, you know, working with uh, Turkish authorities, but also the... Uh, I think German Archaeological Institute. Gotcha. Uh, they sponsor a lot of very interesting digs around the world. It's sort of it's interesting, right? Um, we could dive into why Egyptology has two homes: Britain and Egypt. You can probably guess why Britain, right? The yeah. British Empire, <laughs> and uh, Germany also has an interesting history of relations with Turkey, which meant that Germany often has some of the best Assyriologists. An Assyriologist is someone that sort of studies the fertile crescent civilizations. Yep. This is a uh, modern-day Syria and uh, Iraq, right? Uh, Assyria, right, with an A, Assyriologist. Oh, yes, 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 That's yes, the yes, field yes. of study. Old school Assyrians. Exactly, not Syrians, Assyrians. Exactly. So that's the name of the discipline that's equivalent to gotcha. Egyptology, which I'm sure we've we've all heard of. It's sure. it's much more famous. So the site was opened to tourists. Um, arguably, there was a lot of construction done. Uh, 
Klaus's widow, because unfortunately he passed away a few years ago, uh, protested and said that the Turkish government was damaging the site. The Turkish government said, we are not damaging the site. The problem with this exchange is that they would say that even if they were damaging the right. site. They have no reason to sure. say, yeah, we damaged the site. Sure, we did that. <laughs> um, uh, when, I, when I saw the site itself in its current state, it's uh, first off, digs have been stopped. So mm -hmm. there's a large chunk of the site, 70% of the site remains unexcavated. 70%? Yes. Wow. and they're, The official story is that they're waiting for someone of sufficient skill to lead the dig to uh, expand it oh, okay. so that they can, you know, um, so they can find what would, uh, sorry, so they don't destroy the site in the process of exploring sure. it, which was actually a common problem in the last 200 years or so of archaeology as we now think of it. Sure. Um, but, you know, it's the, the, the new digs have stopped. There are some, uh, the old site is nominally preserved. There's a walkway built around it, so you don't actually walk on that surface, right? Who knows whether the construction itself damaged the site or not. Mm -hmm. It's sort of covered by this kind of sail to protect it from, oh, uh, or roofing to protect it from the elements. But when you visit it, it's extremely windy because it's on top of a hill, so, oh, so it's you know. Eroded in. <laughs> I mean, who, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? I right, mean, right, right. It, you, you're protecting it from rain, at least storms, gotcha. all of that, and you're making it more comfortable for the visitors to see it, so the scorching sun doesn't get in the way of uh, enjoying it. Um, you know, I I thought to myself, well, what about if people, if this was truly to become a mass tourism site, yeah. they would literally start dropping trash because that's the way human beings are, sure. and I didn't see a good solution to that. Like right. you can have like security as much as you want, but if it's big masses of people, that is contaminating the site, yeah. right? Uh, some of it is just litter; you take it away, but like. If you have like tricky materials analysis that you're trying to do to date some things, oh, wow. who knows if that messes it up, yep. right? Who knows yep. if that messes it up? Um, so I would say that I think that there is an argument to be had that when ruins are already part of an urban landscape, mm. you should take measures to preserve them, but it should be open to citizens and open an extension by, to tourists. Why? because it's already part of the social fabric of a city. Just if, by its nature of being Exactly. Yes, yes, if yes. in Istanbul, Rome, to a lesser extent, let's say Athens and Paris, you would try to close off the sites of historical relevance, you would choke the city. Oh, sure. The city yeah. has grown with them. Sure. They're embedded in you know, the, the chest of the city. Yeah, you can't it, really, the viscosity is too much. You cannot exactly, parse it out. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in that case, I think mass tourism is totally appropriate. Cities mm -hmm. are designed to be inhabited by lots of people, especially if it's a big city. Oh, just the, the, the terms of the framework. Exactly, yes, exactly. Yes, yes. For, for, for natural sites and archaeological sites that are not major, near major, major cities, and note Gobekli Tepe is just on a hill in southeastern Turkey near uh, the border with Syria. It's in the middle of nowhere. I think it probably should not be a tourist center. Right, right. It probably shouldn't be. It probably causes damage to it. There's, of course, now the question of, well, does it perhaps also preserve the site? Where if the Buddhas in Afghanistan, you know, the big giant Buddha statues oh, yes, that were yes. blown up in the early 2000s, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if those were mass tourism sites and were already a source of revenue, maybe that would have provided a financial disincentive to destroying them, even if the political incentives Was to get rid of them remain. Rid of exactly, yes, exactly. Yes, wow. And arguably the, um, the uh, you know, the terracotta army in its discovery, right? We all grew up with the terracotta army being almost a, a wonder of the world, certainly a big tourist draw to China. But the main archaeologist working on it was just two years before the discovery of the terracotta army. Uh, you know, a 
put on a Maoist uh, kind of show trial, had a struggle <laughs> session, oh, had to you know confess like you know why I'm not anti-revolutionary because he was suspicious since he studied old things, right? right? right. Um, it's pretty intense, and he was quite afraid when he found the site that the statues would just be smashed because in yeah. the Cultural Revolution, the political view was. Old things are of the past. Yep. They are things, remnants of feudalism. We're now building a socialist, advanced, progressing society. We're going to get rid of it. Old ways of talking, old ways of uh, doing business, old buildings, old art styles are going to be replaced by revolutionary music, by new architecture. Uh, and so the fear was real. Uh, however, through the capriciousness of politics, the desire had entered China to show off to the rest of the world. Mm. Politically, it suddenly became important that the rest of the world thought that China was uh, you know, this very important old civilization. Yes. And suddenly, what would have been political liability became a political asset. And I find it mm. terrifying that this sort of capriciousness of current politics might cause sites that really define our knowledge of, say, you know, the, the Qin dynasty, for example, in the China case. Mm -hmm. uh, might be suppressed, might be destroyed, might be neglected, wow. or they might be brought into the limelight, perhaps even exaggerated. Right. Like that presents a real distorting function on our understanding of history. So tourism was part of China's mass PR campaign. So perhaps tourism is literally the cost of doing business because we don't know of better ways to ensure the relevance of ruins. Mm. And unless ruins are relevant, you, in fact, will eventually have them be destroyed, right. if not for political reasons, then for economic reasons. That's interesting. So it would almost be like we would need, because I was just thinking, say, like, um, say I go back to Tepe and the 30%, it's like, so say, for instance, the 70% that's mm -hmm. going to be unearthed, that no one's going to go there for indefinitely, right. in you know, 25 <laughs> years, 50 years, whatever. But the 30%, we're going to do our best our can, and then we like kind of open it because I just see it obviously becoming Disney World esque, you know, sure, at sure, the end, sure. you know, and then it just becomes like tchotchkes and you know, colorful, you know, blow up. Well, they things. already sell they already sell the fridge magnet. So it may already you, you be need there. to get a fridge magnet when you go there. <laughs> okay. You know? Well, because then I was like, well, maybe better than no history at all, or better than no, you know, ritual or no any of that. It's like, well, maybe we get this Disney fied ish version that maybe people appreciate at least a little bit. Right, right. And then funding things rather than not having it at all. So I don't know if that, that just kind of seemed funny to me because like. I, there's a Ameri very Americanized way of like mm -hmm. this history or things that are mm -hmm. important and stuff like that. Um, so let me just talk, let's keep it with the Gobekli Tepe though for a little bit. Um, I want to say another quote because you wrote this long piece uh, in Palladium Magazine that, that I loved and, and that was kind of the, the onus for, uh, for us to get together and talk. So um, quote, with both agriculture and monumental construction much older than what was thought before, we should likely rethink the origins of urban life as well. How old might settlements of hundreds of thousands of people be? How frequently did such civilizations arise only to fall and be forgotten? I strongly suspect, suspect they might not be thousands, but tens of thousands of years older than we believed previously. And then this is the best part, I think, in my, th in, in my thing, is that you've put some skin in the game in this, or at least right. you're open for skin in the game. Right. Um, quote, I'm happy to take a long bet, that's uh, associated with a not long now, uh, with a qualified challenger skeptical of such a claim that is tw that in 20 years we will know at, at, of at least one such permanent settlement older than 20,000 years. So, so much is there in terms of like <laughs> what, what we could rethink history completely yes. almost. Uh, because Gobekli Tepe is this like new point that we now have to uh, 
address new data point yeah, new that we data have point. to uh, formulate a new paradigm to explain. Literally, and then yeah. from that, that may completely rechange how we our previous conceptions of not just history, but like just how we feel in the household mm -hmm. and, and how we work and things like that. And then lastly, um, kind of explain maybe what the long bet is just for the, the listener sure. and then also kind of why you feel that you are, uh, you're going to be in the, in, in the right, I guess you could say. Right. What are your biggest uh, components? Right, right. Well, to speak, to speak a little bit on the long bet concept, it's oh, a yes. concept from the Long Now Foundation. Maybe it was a, a Stuart Brand suggestion. I have to look at who exactly came up with the concept. But the view was, you know, people talk about the future all the time, mm -hmm. and they get it wrong all the time, yep. and there are no real consequences for getting the far future wrong ever. Right. You know, the famous, uh, you know, Paul Krugman quote that by the year 2005, it will be obvious the effect of the internet on the economy was no greater than the fax machine. Mm. A, a very wrong statement <laughs> from a world-class <laughs> economist writing in the New York Times, right? Yeah. You could joke that that's, uh, you know, peak bureaucratic culture for you, right? For they sure. don't necessarily know how to predict things very well. Um, but the Long Bet, the Long Now Foundation has a mission to encourage long-term thinking, uh, significantly due to a deep environmentalist perspective yep. because you know our uh, planet has cycles that are seasonal and cycles that are thousands of years or even millions of years long and then for humans to synchronize ourselves to be symbiotic rather than parasitic we would have to start developing societies that can have thousand long yep. year long cycles or heck maybe even millions of years sure. long cycle and the long now is a reference to this kind of period of 10,000 years into the future and 10,000 years into the past uh, that's what the reference is. The idea is that this is all now, right? right? right. 4,000 years ago, 4,000 years in the future. This is like a tiny, tiny slice of time compared to the billions of years of Earth's history right. or life's history, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we should be more aware that that's basically now, even right. if it doesn't feel it. Like now isn't this fleeting moment. It's perhaps our entire lifetime. Like ultra present. Exactly, <laughs> ultra present, right. Um, well, and the long bet is a mechanism through which people can register uh, predictions on where you, the bet is resolved in 10 years or 20 right. years. And I felt 10 or 20 years, the reason why I made it a long bet offer is because it's, um, that seems long enough for the relatively slow feedback cycle of a site is discovered, uh, permissions to dig are given, yes. funds are raised, digs start, digs are evaluated. Gobekli Tepe itself was discovered in 1994, right? It was discovered also by an archaeologist that was already thinking outside the box, right? right? Uh, you know, Klaus Schmidt was already searching for a site, and he actually found a site that was already dug up in the 1960s. Oh, wow. We always, you know, when we're doing science or when doing archaeology, we often see what we expect to see. So in the 1960s, yep. the University of Chicago, together with the University of Istanbul, was digging on that hill. They found Neolithic tools, but they assumed the you know, tops of those pillars that you can see, you know, the audience can see if they go on mm. the, uh, if they go check out my article that has mm. photos of the site, uh, those were assumed to be a medieval cemetery <laughs> built on top of the Neolithic site. <laughs> no one was expecting buildings this old so when you see them around, you're like, well, the tools in the buildings, they're probably from different eras. Oh, wow. Okay. But, uh, you know, he disagreed when he saw these photos of it. He, he recognized a similar style that he had found at other sites, younger sites. And, you know, Klaus was open to the right. idea that, yeah, maybe there was Stone Age construction. Stone Age construction on a scale that exceeds what we expect of, you know, hunter-gatherers, right? Um, so 
that openness caused him to rediscover a site rather than freshly discover it. Right. And that also, that paradigm breaking is part of what I want to do with this bet. Mm -hmm. I received very positive um, responses from you know, archaeologists and historians to my article. Um, you know, it's kind of nice when the worst critique someone can give is that, oh, everyone already knows that. I'm like, no, no. Basically, no one knows that, okay? No one knows this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. That's a great point. It's like, it's like the illusion of obviousness. Right. But still, the bet is uh, over a long enough period that new mm -hmm. sites can be discovered during the period of the bet. It's over a bounded enough thing, and it's over the claim that there will be further data points. Gobekli Tepe is not the last data point. There will be new finds. And you know what? New finds they only push our timelines back, yeah. right? It happens much more frequently that we find a new site that pushes our timelines back than it happens that we redate a site to be younger. Sure. So if you were to be a little bit of a futurist and make a simple projection like a weather forecast, I'm gonna ask you, you know, in the year 2060, how old do they think human civilization is? I right. bet they'll think it's much older than we think now. Right now. So yeah. if we can bet that and we know that for 2060, why don't we just assume that, yeah, probably it was, mm. and let's start hunting for evidence. Let's start sponsoring digs. Let's look at the places where there might have been settled society 20 or 30,000 years right. ago. And then so what, do you, I mean, let's just maybe riff on your expertise on this because I haven't but, uh, really looked into it other than Gobekli Tepe, but is there, where other in the world are there those sites? Is it more consecrated mm -hmm. in the Middle East or is it more like China, India, like because that's very old, mm -hmm. Africa, or is it even, are there any in South America, et cetera, and then mm -hmm. in indigenous here in Native American sites as well? Because I know that Cahokia, maybe not this old and stuff, mm -hmm. but all those older, there's a lot more indigenous sites in Native, Amer <laughs> in, 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 uh, Native American culture here in the United States that is the same thing is being pushed right, back, right, and right. back and back and so. back. And, and the scale of it is being extended, right? Oh, I, I could see, talk I about I could talk about a recent uh, uh, set of uh, work that's been done in the Yucatan Peninsula mm, in Mexico, okay. where what they basically did is they uh, they flew planes uh, with lidar equipment. Ah, lidar is. Okay. is basically laser radar, right? You shoot beams yep. of light. They bounce back, computer reconstructs what you saw. Yep. The nice thing about LiDAR is that it can pierce the canopy, so you in fact get a view of what is under the vegetation, mm. and what they discovered astounded them. It was uh, an order of magnitude, a factor of 10, uh, more archaeological sites than they were expecting from the Mayan civilization, wow. causing them to revise upward the population densities and complexities of a civilization that was already considered you know, a pretty advanced one, had astrology, uh, astronomy, had writing, had okay. calendar yeah. systems, mm -hmm. uh, systems of irrigation, obviously massive monumental construction. You know, those, those pyramids were not easy to build. So in the new world, I think we're going to see uh, lots and lots of these settled sites mm. that existed that we previously had no idea existed. In the old world, that is Europe, Asia, Africa, I think we're going to find new sites as well. Currently, the oldest uh, settlements we know of are in the Middle East, though, for example, sites like Mohenjo-Daro near the Indus River Valley, in Pac mostly in Pakistan, but a little bit also in India, those are arguably comparably old. We, in fact, know that there was trade between the Indus River Valley civilization and the Mesopotamian civilizations oh, wow. because we have artifacts from both 
found is that the, at the oldest Silk Road? It, it, it might be. It, it's not quite a Silk Road. It's like an ocean trade route. Oh, so it went through the Persian Gulf and through like the very northern tip of the what's today called okay. the Arabian Sea. Right, right there. Yeah, you have a, to, like, hopefully okay, you right have here. a map right from Kuwait to Karachi or whatever. Yep. Right. Yep. Uh, and you found these seals, seals made to mm. vouch for the quality of goods that were Sumerian seals that are discovered ah. in Pakistan, modern Pakistan, Very right? Cool. So long distance trade is, I think, one of the surprises that's coming. Yep. Now, if I was to make predictions, I would say um, controlling for the political situation in Saudi Arabia, if it is possible to dig in Saudi Arabia without exposing what was dug up to the potential for politically driven destruction, sure. Uh, I think we'll find interesting things there because Saudi Arabia was much less dry six or 7,000 years ago, okay. which is also true, by the way, of the northern Sahara Desert, right? Right, so, it's a changed uh, climate exactly, over the years. Yes, exactly, yes, yes. and deserts, you know, you don't dig much in deserts. Mm. So one of my predictions would be there'll be definitely new sites, new buildings found in Saudi Arabia and to a lesser extent in North Africa, if only we look. Uh, they're going to be found in areas that currently are not inhabitable for mm. agricultural people, but maybe eight, nine, ten thousand years ago were. Uh, and that would be one prediction. And the second prediction, this one actually requires new, mildly new technology, Got it. is uh, underwater archaeology, right? Because yes, currently we only have a few sites that are really explored. Uh, you can view some beautiful video and photos taken of uh, Alexandria, right? The Alexandria of the, you know, Ptolemaic sure, dynasty, yep. exactly. It's, it's sunk under the water. There's been a lot of efforts to, like, do underwater archaeology there with divers cataloging the sites, you know, figuring out what's there. Wow. But, you know, Alexandria is a city that we knew existed. It still exists today. It's I modern see. descendant of that city, mm -hmm. though a little bit up, up, uh, up on land, did not sink. Right, right, right. Um, well, what about cities we don't know about? And is that, I, I've heard now, now that I don't know, so again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard that maybe that that is uh, like Jakarta around Indonesia or something. Is that like something as well, like underwater finds? Because there's been some archaeological, maybe uh, underwater columns or something there, like there's that. There's a lot that? of disputes because okay, a so lot of these sites are not properly investigated. And it's I often see. disputed what's a natural geological phenomena versus what's man-made, and when it's man-made, there are disputes about dating. And mm, a lot of, of these discoveries in Southeastern Asia or near India, uh, they're made in countries that don't really have that many resources to spend on figuring out the truth of deep history. Right. So they sometimes stay unresolved for decades. And of course, in the meantime, commercial fishing or uh, industrial activity or shipping can damage the sites. Absolutely. So I feel underwater archaeology is still a field in its infancy. But the reason why I believe it's promising is that uh, during, the last rest, ice, during the last ice age, we in fact saw a rise in sea levels, oh, right? Yes, if course. you look at the Persian Gulf, the Persian Gulf, there was no Persian Gulf. It was all above water. Mm -hmm. It was just a continuation of the Tigris and Euphrates River uh, flowing all the way to the Straits of Hormuz today. So wow. there's another sunken Mesopotamia right there. Wow. Though, of course, how are you going to get permissions to dig when it's the border between Iran and Saudi Arabia? They'll be like, are you messing with our with our minds? Yeah. You'll be like, no, 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 I'm doing archaeology. You're like, you're doing archaeology and you're an American org? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll get out of here. <laughs> yeah, get out of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's interesting that the political components of all that are really kind of dictating, or at least maybe not dictating, but mm -hmm. maybe uh, re putting the range. They put in, limits, yeah, right? Yeah, limits. That's a great way to put yeah. it. Yeah. Um, okay, so then let's, let's transition into, I think, one of, uh, this is, I guess you could say, your 
coup du jour, the tour de force, or whatever you want to call it, that this is your singular own theory, I, I want to say, uh, sure. that, that, that you kind of uh, came up with on yourself. It's called the great founder theory. So we'll get into kind of a breakdown, but before that, I just kind of want to prime uh, listeners with a quote and then also like where, like a breakdown of like what it has issues with because it's it's kind of hilarious how you start thinking about it and then all of a sudden you go down the rabbit mm-hmm. hole and, and the fractal nature of it that right. things are connected in so many different ways that, right. that, that you didn't even know. So quote, um, the actions and capabilities of great founders determine the future social and material landscape of civilization and thus the future of the world. Societies with many great founders will innovate and flourish while societies with few will stagnate and deteriorate. So this is going to touch on, this is going to be a long list, so bear with me, government, law, political theory, social norms, diplomacy, ideology, strategy, credentials, education, cities, healthcare, sacrifice, rituals, psychotherapy, awards, marketing, marriage, adoption, dynasties. So what is the great founder? (laughs) Well, the list you shared, uh, which is from my uh, book draft, which is available on my website, it's called Great Founder Theory. Um, That is a list of social technologies that really change our society. Let's look at something like marriage. You might say that, oh, okay, no, our society say frowns on cousin marriage because we've uh, developed away from it over the last few hundred years. The like taboo concept, natures, it's a taboo nature. Yeah, yes, yes. But a few centuries ago, like cousin marriage would have been seen as the obviously prudent choice because keep it in your keep it oh, in the groups, family yes, exactly yes, 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 was yes. meant to literally because the family was the fundamental economic unit of organization. Yes. That's no longer the case. Currently it's the company. You might ask what is the company? Well, it's supposed to be freely contracting individuals, but then if we are freely contracting individuals, why do companies exist? Why isn't it just like balls of like weird Everyone's consulting relation? Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. Why isn't that the case? Yes, yes, and uh, you know, the answer is that these aren't quite purely contracting orgs. And I could talk about what companies exactly are. Um, you know, Coates' theory of the firm is like a fairly good first step of that. And we could get rabbit hole on any of these other social technologies. Yeah. But let's take it for a given that there are different way there are differences in how societies can organize themselves, mm, yes. even with the same level of material technology, right? Mm. One of my favorite examples often is, you know, the printing press. People say, oh, the printing press made decentralization of society inevitable. You know, we could have new ideas about theology. It was mm. uh, needed for the Protestant Reformation. And I'm like, yeah, that's all true. And the introduction of the printing press to Korean or Chinese society did no such thing. Ah, yes. So yes, material yes, yes. technology matters but the different social technologies at play change how a society develops a technology further, how its culture changes, yeah. right? So I think that the sort of free parameter, the counterfactually important parameter, the thing that were it not for this, history would have gone differently, mm. is actually innovation in social technology driven by great founders, where I also believe that most social technologies are too complex, they emerge too rapidly for them to truly be the product of like a pure kind of evolutionary approach, right? Mm. There are many things that do happen in that way. Like a lot of language evolution changes over time due to the contributions, the minuscule contributions of many, many people Um, being adopted into the culture. But when it comes- and how things little change, families, et cetera. Totally, but when it comes to say a code of law that's introduced or a new standardized uh, system of accounting, well, you know, that's often introduced by individuals. Like they might be prophets, 
they might be generals, if it's a military reform, they might be statesmen. Not every quote-unquote great man is a great founder. I'm not here talking about people who just participate in momentous events. Mm -hmm. You know, as highly as we might think of a general as say Patton, I wouldn't classify him as a great founder. Napoleon, on the other hand, maybe he is a great founder, but that's because of the military reforms and the legal reforms that lasted long after Napoleon was defeated. Yeah, not and necessarily his strife into Russia. Exactly. Like that's a, that's a, maybe a bad tactic, but right. overall the history and the legacy is, is different I because see, of his passing. And much the same is true of, say, Charlemagne. But it mm. would also be true of, say, Confucius. It would be true of Aristotle. Mm. It would be true of, you know, Muhammad or Jesus and so yes. on, yes. right? And, uh, you know, it's... Once you put it in those terms, it sounds like common sense, right. but academically, this is a really underexplored area. It's hard to make a career out of mm. saying that the future is unwritten and social reforms are central to what happens to the future. It's hard to write like a good dissertation on this. It's hard to like make it small and defensible. So it has an easier time living outside of academia than in it, though I will acknowledge there is uh, older academic literature that was quite developed on these theories of, say, individual-driven change. Now, mm, yes. why do I think it's individuals? Well, great founder theory does have a little caveat. It could be very small groups of people rather than just an individual, right? I do believe mm. in senius, the genius of a scene, where if you take an exceptional individual and they're not in the correct scene, their genius might be wasted. Oh, Failed course, genius yeah. is a common tragedy of human history. Mm. There are only a few correct situations where it can arise. And at the end of the day, if you're introducing new social technologies, you have to explain them and embody them, embody them with people. Uh, the reason course. Aristotle yes, yes, and yes. Confucius are people that I would raise as possibly founder tier in this sense is because they created schools of thought. It wasn't <laughs> Confucius himself, but Confucius's disciples that eventually executed the plan of getting yeah. hired by the emperor and then slowly reforming society to be more meritocratic and based yeah. on, a, on a objective testing rather than inherited titles of nobility. Mm -hmm. uh, and were it not for that, Confucius might be quite irrelevant for the flow of Chinese civilization after. Right. But he wasn't, right? It, they succeeded it, it, much so that that now uh, you can't ask a Westerner, you know, name a Chinese philosopher or something like that, and then that's going to be the first go-to, right? Rather than Lao, Lao Tzu or someone else, it, right? Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Um, so you just mentioned that kind of, uh, and, and this will wrap up kind of uh, the great founder theory. But um, we talked a lot about social technologies and the difference of physical technologies and such, and you kind of put an onus on the individual instead institutional mm -hmm. and then societal. But then. Can you like steel man your argument a little bit? Like, can you kind of maybe not exactly poke holes, but what are some things to some, like that's going to challenge maybe that? You know, is well, it people people would obviously say that individuals are always a product of their circumstance. I see. Their and I would say yeah. possibly that's completely true. Perhaps we live in a totally deterministic universe. You know, mm. quantum effects notwithstanding, or whatever. Sure, sure. We live in a totally deterministic universe. So, like, please tell me how exactly are you going to compute the appearance of a Napoleon? I would say that in that case, in the very deterministic universe, the appearance of such um, equilibria breaking individuals or small scenes is a stochastic process. Right. It's completely unpredictable. Right, right. So it just emerge out of everything right. rather than you telling it, well, it needs to happen in this particular parameter, this time frame, et cetera. So if you want to produce a bounded theory that makes good predictions, you're not going to try to like figure out the exact details of the stochastic process. Instead, you're going to be like, okay, individual has emerged. What are the bounds of what this can do? Right, this strange right. particle has entered your experiment. What happens next? And I think that's 
quite predictable. It's interesting because the variables don't really matter. It's that that fundamental kind of uh, right. I guess you'd say. Um, what do they call it in uh, initial conditions? I right. think that's a, that's a big right. way to put it. Um, so let's move on to uh, how you kind of made all of this uh, together, brought all this together. So we'll briefly kind of go into what Bismarck Analysis is. So it's a consulting firm that investigates the political and institutional landscape of society. You mentioned mm-hmm. a little bit at the beginning uh, about kind of making your life this, you know, and it's right. just kind of part of it, which is great. But then kind of um, let's talk about what exactly is is almost why is it needed why why are some, it, not just for the you know to employ fellows and academia or to have a consulting firm etc but like what exactly is it that kind of does the theory to practice that's what i kind of want to hone in on it for for you you specifically in bismarck so i guess just kind of set the tone and, and then maybe right on that right there are three layers to this the first layer is i think we live in a society that is significantly disconnected from its current material conditions yes. where we are undersupplied when it comes to social technology innovation and reform. And it, we are, in fact, in a society that has many mature, uh, decaying, uh, failing organizations mm. where it's very much unclear that they will be replaced by new functional institutions. So right. in that setting, it is an opportunity to be able to assist functional institutions or help bring them about. So that's sort of like the, the pro-social aspect of why I'm motivated to create like a consulting firm that interfaces with actual individuals and governments, right? Ultra high net worth individuals, like governments, mm-hmm. like um, nonprofit organizations, for-profit organizations, to try to help improve the institutions a little bit, right? On the margin, push our society there. You know, compare That's how to you're trying to help. well, totally, totally. <laughs> compare it to just publishing a book, which I'll yes. also, which I'm also doing, but. Uh, it's, it's sort of like I feel the, the sin of academia is, you know, you do your research, you write your paper, you chug it over a wall, you assume that it'll be applied, and there's no one on the other side of the wall. I know, and then it's just cr- you're looking over, is it over? Yeah, yeah right. that, that's so, hilarious. So that's the first aspect. The, okay. se- the second layer of this is the uh, client side layer. Uh, oh, yes. You know, there are many, many people who have made their money in material technologies, or let's, let's say information technology being a subset of that. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, tech has made a lot of money. It has shaped the world, but it has created questions it doesn't always know how to resolve. Mm -hmm. So we are here to provide uh, basically in-depth review of entire industries, such as we did with the machine tool study for someone that might want to, uh, you know, pivot from, uh, you know, just bits to atoms or something like this. Uh, And we also provide, uh, you know, these sort of analyses of particular organizations where you might not be sure exactly, well, could I, how should I approach the Swiss government if I had an interesting proposal mm. uh, for collaboration, you know, how to enhance uh, technolo- the technology sector there? If I want to create a competitor uh, to London, you know, in the European context, London's kind of the IT center of Europe. Or, uh, you know, how would I f- uh, fundraise with Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund? Sure. Or, uh, you know, what are the odds that this particular government uh, is going to you know nationalize my factory if I build a factory there. So we do uh, this type of political forecasting, like related to political stability. Mm-hmm. We do this sort of uh, fundamental analysis of large bureaucracies where we predict their behavior. So people will hire us to like do a, you know predict uh, things about their competitors oh, sure. or uh, mm-hmm. regulatory organs and how to best approach them. Yep. And then finally, we also do this type of philanthropic work, right? Mm-hmm. Where say clients might be interested in what can I do as someone who has already made their money and I want to shape the world in a pro-social way, say if they're extremely worried about artificial intelligence, they might be 
interested in the history of uh, weapons regulation treaties, uh, such as, you know, uh, and more interestingly, what an individual rather than a country can do to try to help bring them about, to have something like the equivalent of a landmine ban, if landmine mm. bans even work. Right. You don't know this unless you're like a small professional and it's like really tiny feel yes, of yes, like, yes. A, not even bleeding edge, it's like obscure. It's oh, a okay, random okay, political field, right? So we, we love doing stuff that's <laughs> cutting edge, that's very, uh, that's unique, that's like this type of applied research you can't get anywhere else. Okay, uh, we uh, basically fill these gaps uh, that other companies don't provide. Mm. So I'm very happy to say we, from my perspective, have no competitors. That's what I actually think makes it great business. At least it has been a good business for the last four years. Um, well, but then let's talk about the final layer. I already right. explained now the client layer, the pro-social layer. The final layer is an epistemic one where I think that how do you actually incentivize, you know, say you think history is mostly driven by elite developments, right? Mm, yes. How are you going to get elites to like, you know, offer themselves up to study. Oh, You're like, about it, right, right. You're like, hey, I'm an anthropologist. I would like to know how closed door deals happen. That's not going to work, right? That's not going to work no. at all. Uh, yeah. So there's, in fact, like a bunch of intellectual dark matter, right? Stuff that really, really matters yep. where the uh, literature will be kind of wrong as to how it's done because the literature will record the official story rather than any real observation. So uh, I needed a way to become not just a scholar, but a practitioner. And the consulting relationship and uh, work with our clients and work with my intellectual colleagues, that enables that. Right. And that, that caused me to have more confidence in my conclusions and also see when my conclusions need revision, when right. my thoughts need revision and improvement. That's great. Uh, well, I mean, definitely good luck on, on future things. And we'll link to some of, the, uh, some of the stuff. And I think the biggest one that I've read is uh, uh, with the nuclear disarmament, I think uh, you had yes, done some yes. stuff, so we don't have really time to get it. But I'll link to it uh, in that. But uh, last question, just to kind of sum up all of this, uh, we talked a lot about history. We talked a lot about digital technologies, mm -hmm. um, uh, institutions, founding. What um, would you say? Uh, this is the again a question that I ask all my mm -hmm. guests at the end. Is um, if you were experiencing the, the overview effect, which is basically you're in the atmosphere on the moon, uh, so high up that you can see the Earth for all of its glory, right. uh, and then maybe you have some type of video conferencing thing to the right. entire world, and this is your time to shine and say something. Now, this is to kind of again put you on the spot, but at the same time, it doesn't have to be uh, as uh, ridiculous as Bill and Ted's, you know, be be nice to each other, you know, kind of deal. So, what would you say as like your parting words for you know people to to, to think about to to do, mm -hmm. and then maybe become practitioners as you just put it uh, in their own way, mm -hmm. in their own way. Well, yeah, it's a very difficult question you asked, and I I, I assume you must uh, you must always ambush your guests yes. with it. It's like one of the features of the show. Um, I would say that you know sort of what one man can do, another can do, and I mean man in the sense of human being, sure. right? What one human being can do, another can do. So I would, uh, I would commend to people, implore them even, to take inspiration from mm -hmm. exceptional individuals in human history when they've really done remarkable things that were considered impossible, right? So whenever you read about a historical figure doing something, they're essentially like you. They have two arms, two legs, have a mind you might not succeed but like it's only through such people that things can possibly move forward right well i love that i love that 
Well, cool. Well, that's all the time we have. Um, so we're going to wrap this up. But thank you so much for coming on Conversation, Samuel. Really yeah. appreciate it. It was a pleasure talking to you. Awesome. Well, until next time, at Astra. Eclectic Spacewalk presents Conversations, a podcast about the uniqueness of the human condition and how, through conversation, we can continue to upgrade humanity's value systems.